Welcome to ChangeBoard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. My name is Karen Filfalan, and I'm ChangeBoard's Deputy Editor. Firstly, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to hear more than 30 brilliant interviews with some of business's biggest thinkers. Today, I'll be talking to tech giant Philips about social mobility, creativity, and the constant need to stay ahead in technology. In this podcast, we'll hear first from Dio Nunes, a research scientist in oral healthcare, about his extraordinary journey from civil war in Angola to working for Philips in the Netherlands, and how he's encouraged to use his experiences at work. Then, we'll speak to Cynthia Burkhart, Philips's global head of recruiting and talent acquisition, about how the organization supports Philips's employees across the world to bring their whole selves to work, the changing nature of skills tech businesses need, and why STEM employers need to continue to diversify. Enjoy the podcast, and here's Dio's story. Right, so I, I, I was born in Angola during the Civil War, and uh, right at the end of it, I moved to South Africa. And the main reason was that South Africa was a land of opportunity relative to Angola. We had no teachers, uh, schools were destroyed, uh, I went to school with no shoes, torn shirts. But at the end of the war, there was a chance for me to go to South Africa where it did high, I finished my high school and then also went to university. That is a time where, be, that was my formative years, where I began to, to realize that so many of the tools needed to solve big problems we're not in the area where the problems exist. And, and I sort of began to capitalize on the little information I had. I dedicated myself more into my study, understanding how products are made, even at the high school level. And of course, those, that knowledge doesn't serve anybody if you are, one, not in an institution or the place where you have both the, the resources to execute on those, or you have the support structure to actually allow you to use that structure to create the solutions that you've identified, solutions to problems you've identified. So when I was in South Africa, I had this uh, sense of, um, I wasn't a bit unsettled. I, I felt privileged to have the, this opportunity to study, but yet not being capable of making anything out of it. And at that moment, at the end of, of, my, of, my, of my bachelor's in South Africa, I went to Southeast Asia and through a process of just traveling around as most young people do, I decided that, you know, this isn't filling me in any way. So I went to a Buddhist monastery. And that's where I think I had more my moment of awakening, so to speak, and that's a cliche word. But I believe I, 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 you know, when you spend five days without talking, without, you know, writing, with just absorbing what you have, you have a chance to actually confront, you know, the, the, the essence of you. You go deep inside yourself. And that's where you begin to, to sort of dissect yourself to the bare essential. And then you realize exactly what is it you should be doing. And at that moment, I thought, okay, so I have this background in, you know, basically in just living in problems. Yet I have this privilege of having information. But what I really would have, what I would do with is to be at a place that allows me to combine those two. And then I, I, that's when I had my, tra- my transition to, to the Netherlands, where I, I, where I, did, uh, I studied in Maastricht University of Artificial Intelligence. And the, the very first chance I had to, to, to go to Philips was via a, um, uh, an internship offer. 
at that moment, I had a lot of colleagues who were, told, who were telling me, and this is the story of my life, oh, you know, you won't make it there, blah, blah. And I, I've, I, had, I, I had learned from a very young age that I can do whatever I want. I taught myself to read, and this isn't going, you know, people's opinion won't really affect me. I decided to apply in any case. And before I applied, I actually did a test on Philip's website where you ask, you ask a couple of questions of your values and your drivers and motivations. And then you have a score that tells you how compatible you are. At that moment, I was over 90% compatible with Philip. So I just sent my application through. And then I had this chance basically to be an intern at a moment where there was a lot of things going in the background. I was facing the prospect of going back home because there was no funds for me to continue my studies. And having that internship basically changed everything. So here I am, about to lose the very thing I came for. Living, coming from a part of problem, having the tools, and now being in an area where the tools exist, but now I'm about to go back to the problems. And my supervisors you know, pulled some strings and managed to stay, and they gave me this carte blanche. Basically, this environment where I was free to express my creativity, and I had come up with a product, of course, and so due to uh, sensitive uh, information, I won't share that. The nature of the work they did had solved a problem that had not, that had been thought to be hard to solve, or at least if it's solved, it's solvable, requires a large amount of investment. And I'd managed to do that as an intern in the span of a year. And so as, during that stage, I was also introduced to some of the parts of Philips that I could work for if I decided to stay. And that was basically a perfect match. It was just glass to the hand that I can now make the changes I've always dreamed of. What challenges did you face in your early days? So the, the biggest challenge I've faced there, so some of them were more the um, uh, sort of the, the baggage that you come from being born in a, in a, in a problem, in an area that has a lot of problems. And this would come from families, from friends, and the way your teachers would see you because they see you as just one of them and any potential you may have you know it, it's not really recognized as such so you all i always had to battle that so to speak glass ceiling that was sort of self-imposed by the cultures from the culture that, by the culture that came from and then when i went to south africa I faced another type of problem i'm in an area i was 15 i left home and i'm on my own and I'm supposed to make it out and I'm supposed to find my way around it. So in a way, part of the reason I, I, I sort of went through this fluidly wasn't because I went obstacle, it's because my mindset had been such that I have seen far worse to be intimidated or to be deterred by some of the things I see around me. Uh, when I went to school, I remember I was not allowed to take mathematics because I wasn't grade 11 and in South Africa in my high school one should make the every student should make their minds up by grade 9 so by grade 10 you decide you're going to do mathematics and if you don't you, you do the other subjects and I had this battle with my teacher where I told him I'm switching from business economics to the subject I'm doing mathematics he told me dear you're crazy everybody does the opposite you can't I told him look I want to go do computer science and I went to the university a few weeks ago that's told me I need math and I need to have a high score. Like he told me, yeah, this is one of the reasons I'm not going to let you do it. First, you're starting late. And second, you need to get good grades. So even if you do pass, you still won't be good enough. So don't waste your time. 
I was very adamant. And I decided I'm going to have to prove him wrong. I got the principal of the school involved. And first, uh, the six months later, we had a, a test. I scored very high. And he asked the question, who of you thinks I will get an A at the end of the, of the high school? I was the only one who raised my hand and everybody laughed. End of the year, it was in fact, I did in fact get the A. So from that moment onwards, my perspective of what an insurmountable, insurmountable problem was changed. And my history basically, you know, so I have a, an infinite supply of problems from family members uh, and friends around me back in Angola. And every time I'm working on a particular problem, I always have to be critical that if it solves a problem, it must solve a real one. And if it does solve a real problem, it must be simple enough so the people who actually have it understand it. So what I would do is I have a basic rule of determining whether something is meaningful. I will call my mom or call some of my family back, my family and friends back home and, and try to explain the idea. And then if I can't get it, if they can't understand it in say a minute, it's probably very complex. They probably don't even have the problem. And if they can see, wow, why don't we have this? Then I will begin to think how to make it more palatable to them, how to make it in a way that it solves a problem. I mean, ultimately, that's what drives me. I, I, I don't really care what I work with, as long as at the end of the day, the things I touch, touch the people who touch it later, then I feel I'm satisfied. You mentioned teaching yourself to read. How did you do that? But I have a friend called, I had a friend called Chimbalanga, and he was basically the only person I knew that could read at the time, well, except for my dad. And um, he had this alphabet written down somewhere. And then I went to him and told him, hey, teach me the alphabet. He told me, uh, I don't have the time. And then he sent me around doing some errand. And once I came back, I, I, got, I gave him some mangoes and told me, look, it's A to Z. Just go home, remember it. And then I went back and said, okay, now I know it. Like, what next? And he goes, well, that's it. Like, what do you mean that's it? I can't read. Like, no, no, no. All you have to do now is just compose. Make your own salad. If you take a B and an A, it's ba. A D and an E is D. And then just do it. So I would try to walk around. And then if I see an object I inter interact with, I will try to spell it. And I will try to, from the sound, in Portuguese, it's much easier because words are pronounced exactly the same way that you read them. Uh, so I would say, okay, that is cama, bed, for instance, it's just C-A-M-A. -A. Oh, okay, now I know how to write it down. And when I'm walking down the streets, if I see a little piece of paper on the floor, I will pick it up and try to read it. Uh, and so I always looked at it like I was a crazy person. I would read number plates. I would read words on tankers. I would read words on military weapons. Anything that I encountered, I would try to read it. And after a while, it got boring because I kept on seeing the same words over and over and over again. And that's when I knew that I, I probably can read as much as is available. I mean, of course, because I didn't have any assessment, uh, I couldn't tell, you know, what my level is. But at least I knew I could watch a movie with subtitles. How does Philips help you be creative? Well, so at Philips, we have HealthWorks, which is an organization that creates an entrepreneur. So not entrepreneur, but insight. And typically, that kind of, uh, in many, many organizations, you, you typically have a funnel of people who go through these programs based on seniority. But I have, a, uh, my, I have probably the best <laughs> manager uh, anyone would ever wish for. And she knows that I have this mindset of going forward, of 
of pushing the boundaries and she believes that she must assist me in this journey. And she told me at the beginning of end of last year, look, um, I know, you know, you, you do not necessarily have the business acumen, but you have potential. So I'm going to give you the benefit of that. I'm going to let you go to this program and I want you to just do what you do best. And, you know, last week we had the pleasure, it was the end of this program and we had the pleasure, uh, I had the pleasure of going in front as one of the best performing teams that succeeded in this thing. And, and for me, that was uh, uh, a, a cause for, 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 for rejoicing. I mean, it also speaks, it speaks a lot more to how easy it is for me to get support from Philips in order to do some of the things I do. There was a, a previous project I worked on last year, which was basically trying to, uh, to create a new product specifically for underserved people in Africa. And I was not a part of this project. And I asked my manager that uh, you know, I wanted to be a part of it, but because I also had other assignments that I was assigned to, I could not have uh, been allocated to both. But you know, I was given the chance to basically be, use my free time if I wished and be in that project, and then I will get some partial support for some of the things at my time that I would, some, for some of the, the time that I may have to take from my regular projects. And that was possible. And so it's, uh, I feel I have everything I need, basically. And, and Philips has been really supportive in that. Now, we're going to hear from Cynthia about Philips's talent strategy and why people like Dio are so important to the organization. I too was inspired by his story on the podcast. <laughs> um, and, and I, but what I would say about Dio is that he's a great example of, of talent that exists around the world and, and a good example of why we have to explore other locations, as I mentioned to you. Um, it, it, there's a, there's this quote that I love, um, and I, and I, I, I'm blanking right now on who said it. I know it was a woman. Um, and she said, you know, talent is equally distributed around the world, but opportunity, opportunity is not. Um, and of course that's true. Right. And he's an example of a guy who over overcame his lack of opportunity. Right. He, when he talked about his teacher in grade four turning was his class late classmate in grade nine, you know, I'm sitting in the U.S. and that's shocking to me, right? Um, this is a guy who overcame it because of just sheer determination and fortitude. Um, but I don't want it. To, but I, as as the head of recruitment, I don't want it to be that hard for everyone, right? I want to make sure that we're in any way that we can bringing roles to those exceptional people like Dio. And, and, and we can do that through, you know, allowing for remote work arrangements or, you know, whatever that looks like. But there's a tremendous amount of talent around the world and it's not just where our bricks and mortar sit. So as, as I look over my recruitment function, that's really one of the points that, I, that, that we, we and other big companies have to wrap our, our arms around. There are people like Dio out there and we got lucky. He was in Amsterdam because he'd moved himself to Amsterdam, but that's not always the case. And how do we, how do we, how do we find those people and inspire those people that, that aren't in our locations? It must make you proud to have such an advocate like Dio and how you helped him settle into the organization. Yeah, I like the word you're using because because I when I describe my my employee experience at Philips, proud is the word I use the most. 
um, you know, I, 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 I'm proud of the fact that we found Dio and that we've given him, we're giving him what he, his dream of what he's wanted to work on. Um, and we're doing that for so many people because anybody who's mission oriented and, and can get excited around our vision of, of improving the human condition, they're going to like it. And, you know, we got to get, we just have to find them and be able to tell our story. So I, I'm really proud of the story we have to tell. Um, How difficult is it for Philips to attract top talent in the tech sphere? What's your pitch? Yeah, so I will share with you that it's very, very difficult, and, it, and it's not just difficult for Philips. It's it's difficult around the world, and th there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but I have to say that my job's pretty exciting right now. I had recruitment, and I have never in my history seen such a such a disruption in the labor market as I have in the last decade, and it, lots of reasons for that. If you think about it, um, if you think five, ten, fifteen years ago. There's a lot of jobs that exist in the tech space that didn't exist before. So if you think about cloud architects, you think about AI jobs, you think about data scientists, et cetera, et cetera, those people weren't in the labor market before. So we don't have a base. So it, it makes it quite difficult. There, there, there's just simply not enough people out there. And there's all kinds of scary statistics out there that, you know, for example, there's parts of the world where there's, there's four jobs for every one coder and we get statistics from companies that say, you know, coders are getting reached out to by recruiters 10 to 20 times per week. And so these folks are just saturated by messaging, right? They're, they're, every company's got their story to sell and they're saturated by, by messaging. And, and the research shows that they just get a little bit paralyzed almost because they don't know, they don't know how to filter that, right? They don't know how to, how to really find that company that's a good match. And so in recruitment, that becomes a really big challenge, right? We've got to figure out a way to get through the noise and deliver our messages to this tech talent because we, we've got a really powerful mission and vision here. Um, but if I, if I just get lost in the noise, I can't, I can't recruit, right? So, so um, that's, that's a lot of what we're spending our time and our, and our resources on is, is how are we going to get through to this very important segment of the labor market? Because if we don't, we'll fail. Um, it, we, we have to grow, we have to keep up, and, and, we've, and the pace is frantic, so we've got to be on top of it. What are some of the practical things you do at Philips to compete in the tech world? Are there any tips you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll be honest, we've been a little, almost a little aggressive <laughs> in our marketing. Um, we have an, a program that we call internally our, our recruitment marketing uh, program called Code to Care. And what we've decided to do is really just talk about our, our mission, but get to them in a really creative way. So, so for example, the, the Philips vision is to improve the lives of 3 billion people. And, you know, it's not just lip service. It's actually something we believe in. And it's, it's actually why I still work at Philips, um, because we care about that. And so how do we get that message out? And we've been a little bit aggressive um, to the point that we've, we've even had some complaints from, from some competitors. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of we have one piece of messaging out there that says, and I'm paraphrasing this, so apologies for not getting the wording exactly right. But basically, we're saying to, the, to this population, look, you could, you could code and build an app to find the nearest pub or you could build an app to help doctors find cancer. Um, and it's really just, you know, let that sit, right? Let that sit and think about, you know, what, what mark do you want to leave on the world? And, and wouldn't that be a really exciting one to, to leave? So, um, you know, we, we've, we really want to get out there and talk to people about 
the stuff we're doing in, in the diagnosis space and in all the other spaces uh, because I think it differentiates us. Um, so we're pretty aggressive. We, we spend a lot of resources on how we get to them. Um, we have we have a series of of podcasts called The Spark, uh, which we're trying to tell our story in a, a less conventional way, right? Try to get some of that Phillips messaging out there in, in a way that so, that differentiates us in the noise. Um, we're, you know, we we attempt to partner with bloggers who believe in our products so they can talk about us. So, of course, we do all the traditional methods. Everybody has to. You can't you can't ignore them. But we we're trying to figure out smart ways to get to that target audience faster. How do you keep up with the changing nature of skills in the workforce? The skill set you need is changing rapidly. How do you update those skills? Um, so uh, I'll be honest with you. Anybody who's telling you they're keeping up with it, it, it probably isn't paying attention because I don't think there is a, there is a keeping up. To be honest, I think um, we we mostly have to play catch up, but we and we have to keep our eye on the eye on the changes. So not only do you have you know the the new types of roles popping up like you mentioned, but you also have a new type of worker um, where I don't want to sign on for a company long term. I want to have a gig. You know, I want to come in, code for you, and then go do it for someone else. Uh, and and then you also have uh, you also have the rise of the silver generation, which is this huge population of retirees because we're living longer and they want to work. So how do you keep up? You the keeping up is really just trying to figure out the mix, right? You, so you've got a problem you've got to solve within the company, and you've got to figure out you know does this make sense for a worker does this make a, a, an FT a full-time at worker or does this make sense for a gig worker does this make sense so you actually have to sort of think through what you're trying to solve and what are the very many ways that you could solve it and, and it's it's challenging for a manager because if you think about how this affects them managers who for the last four decades have managed workers now go from managing workers to managing work so this is the work I need to have done and I have to get it done through you know, five different resources versus the traditional one resource that I used to get it done through. And so what we're trying to do to keep up is, yes, absolutely upscaling the folks that we have internally. Um, we do have people in our university, you know, focusing on what is our tech talent want and how do we keep them current? We know that we know that you lose tech talent very quickly if you don't keep skilling them up. They can just go somewhere and get their, they don't, they, they don't want to get they don't want to get old, right? They don't want to, um, and, and I mean that from a technology standpoint, they want to make sure that they're current at all times. Um, we're paying attention to um, how, who we're, who we're contracting. We're paying attention to how we're going to get ahead of this gig economy transition. We're paying attention to the silver workforce. We're just trying to put all these things in place. And all the while, you know, the bus is moving. <laughs> and we're just trying to change the wheels. So it's it's an interesting, I mean, it's a fun environment right now with all these changes, but it's it's interesting and, and we're just hoping to keep up. It's so competitive. How do you manage creativity? In the UK, uh, one of our biggest insurers, Aviva, has siloed off a department for tech disruption and creativity. How are you um, at Philips engaging new ideas? Yeah, so creativity is interesting because I, I, I believe that creativity is somewhat innate, right? I don't think you develop creativity. Um, what we have to do is we have to find people who have that who have that ability, and then we just have to get out of their way. And so what we focus on, of, of course, from a recruitment standpoint is, you know, look for, look for creativity out there. And that can, you can look at that 
lots of different ways. You can look at that with, for you know, what what what's your patent history, right? If you're if you're a if you're in the tech industry, how many your names on how many patents out there, and that could be an indicator. So there's there's lots of indicators on paper that can say, okay, this is probably a creative person. Then you've got to interview for it, right? So we make sure that we that we tap into that through the interview process. And I think, but I think what's more important is once you get them in to not stifle their creativity. So you know, it's it's interesting. I I watched. I don't know if you watched this show called Silicon Valley on HBO. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite shows. And in the first season, um, this incubator that sits in Silicon Valley gets purchased by a large organization, and they have the corporate guy come in, and the corporate guy starts talking to them about framework and deadlines and agendas and da da da. And I remember this. It, the, one of the characters, the lead characters looks up and says, wait a minute, this just turned into work. And that always resonated with me because that's a that's a tough balance, right, in a company because you do have budgets and you have deadlines and you have stockholders and you have all these things that have to happen, but those are the very things that stifle creativity, right? So how do you how do you bring in these great minds, these people who are going to take risks and think differently and then couple that with measurement and framework and structure. So at, at the, trick to, the trick of it is really just how do you buffer them? You can't get rid of that stuff. You know, we've got stockholders, we've got, we've got, we've got to do things, uh, we've got to grow. But at the same time, how do we buffer them so that we don't squash their creativity and how do we accept risk so we don't stop them from being creative, right? It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, um, to say yes to a risky idea, but sometimes you've got to do it because it could be the next big thing. So it's not so much, I don't think you foster it as much as you hire for it and you get out of its way. What are some of the ideas that have come out of the creative mindset, Phillips, that you are most proud of? Are there any you can share? Well, so I, I don't want to talk about one in particular product, but I, there, is a, there was a moment for me that I think was kind of pivotal in my career um, with Philips. And I had gone to India and I was sitting in Bangalore at what we call our uh, Philips Innovation Center. And I, I was sitting and I was watching a meeting. And they were explaining in the meeting that in India, there's three tiers of cities. There's, there's tier ones, tiers twos, tier three. And the tier ones have excellent health healthcare, you know, you know, similar to similar to uh, mature markets, et cetera, et cetera. The tiers tier three can absolutely have no access to healthcare. On top of that, India is very relationship oriented. So if someone in a tier three three city gets sick, they need to pilgrim, have a pilgrimage to a tier two or a tier one, depending on the severity of the sickness. And because they're a relationship culture typically their whole family comes with them. So very disruptive for a family, put a lot of burden on a family. And I'm sitting in this room in India and I'm watching these engineers think about how are we gonna solve this for India? You know, we need to either find a way that the patients can be seen in, in, third, in tier three cities and there's no infrastructure there. So what does that look like, right? Or a way that we can bring health tech, healthcare to them, health tech to them, um, 
in a in a way that works when there's no infrastructure and and you know they were I was just watching this creative process and I was a fly on the wall and it was so fascinating because the these guys and it was all guys although that isn't always the case but these guys were so excited about solving this for the country in which they lived and you and the creativity was huge and and we do have some uh, some different products in the incubator now that are trying to 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 solve those problems but you know so that was actually that this that was actually the moment in my role where I saw the power of it and you know I and I sort of made it my personal mission to to not only just deliver those candidates to Phillips as as the head of recruitment but to help drive change that we need to make sure that we are, are keeping and inspiring these folks um, and that's that's one of the things that that I, I try to influence in my in my role yeah talking about your trip to India and the different issues there we also heard from Dio about his journey to the Netherlands office. How do you bring all these different nationalities and cultures together to be part of the Philips value set and, and your own culture that you're trying to achieve? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because, you know, three years ago at, at companies, everybody was talking about you need to be diverse because we know diverse companies have better bottom lines, right? So it was all a business case. <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the interesting thing is I don't hear Phillips talk about that as much anymore. Um, I think sort of that's just understood, you know, at this point as a baseline. And what, we, what we're all aligned around is that we're not diverse enough. Um, it, it, some of that is because we're very largely a STEM company, right? And in those, unfortunately, in those STEM areas, you'll find, for example, a lack of females um, at, the, at the upper levels. Um, I don't see, we don't feel as much um, the issues with diversity of, of nations or cultures because we are truly a multinational company. We're truly a global company and and we do enough movement around that that we've done a lovely job of, of understanding cultures and and truly working as a as as a global organization. What we do see is that that lack across the board of females and in fact our our CEO just came out publicly and said that we will commit to having 25% females in our leader in our leadership team um, in the in the coming years. So we've got a lot of work around that. Um, it, it's difficult because we're in the STEM functions. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with the organization on a lot of things. I'm I'm pulling what I'm what I'm calling three levers. I'm pulling three levers, which is first of all I'm gonna I, I need to figure out where the diversity sits in the world. So where do I have the best chance in the mar labor markets? And then we might need to change some locations for that, and and the company's open to that. Um, and then after that, it's really just let's focus on attraction. What's important? What's important to our different diverse segments around the world? And diversity means different things in different countries. Um, and then last, remove bias. So if if we're in the right locations, we're working on our attraction and we're removing bias. We we should be able to catch up, um, even in the STEM fields where it's where it's a little more difficult. Um, but what's important is is there's a ton of focus on it. It's one of the top three priorities for our HR organization right now, and we've made some really ambitious uh, we've made really ambitious sets of uh, of goals around it. So everybody's laser focused on this as an organization. Why do you think the STEM fields have struggled historically to attract female workers? <laughs> now you're tapping into my psychology degree. Um, so <laughs> I would say that it's, I, I, I think it's, it was really just socialization, right? I think that 
you know, in generations before ours, you know, uh, women were steered towards a certain set of occupations and men were steered toward another. And there was sort of these perceptions that the sciences and the maths were better served by men and the, the softer, the softer um, things were better served by females. And of course, as you, time went on, we, we found that none of that was actually true, but we'd socialized that way for so long that we're now trying to overcome overcome that as as our history and our heritage around the world um, and I and I think we will but we're, we're not there for sure I mean there's there's we still have populations out there where primarily women aren't in the workforce um, that will change but it's it's an evolution not a revolution so um, there's not much we can do to to um, change the cultures that exist but we can try to get the best and the brightest to join Phillips that, that the labor markets do have to offer What's your advice to fellow HR professionals? <laughs> Good one. Um, my advice is to sort of throw out the old thinking. Um, everything that we're used to and feels comfortable, all of these traditional work arrangements, all of these, you know, these, the, this thinking that employees are going to come to you and they're going to stay to you with forever, stay with you forever. Um, you got to throw that out because that's not what's coming. What's coming is people want to work the way they want to work. And it's up to us to figure out how to let them do that. Um, there's, you know, there was a time when there were more workers than, than jobs and that time is gone. So my advice is to jump on board because the train is leaving the station. And if, if, if you're not paying attention to it, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Thanks for listening to this Changeboard Future Talent podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment or rating. For more stories like these, follow us on Twitter with the handle at Changeboard or visit www.changeboard.com. We look forward to welcoming you to another podcast very soon.